On the show today, Professor Dan Chambliss, here to talk about the mundanity of excellence in all of its wonderful forms. In his early days, Dan Chambliss was inquisitive, well-read, and curious about the world around him. Growing up in a home that valued reading and learning, Dan was able to create strong connections across multiple disciplines that helped to broaden his view of the world and gain deeper understanding into the nature of the human spirit. Dan had very little interest in sport when he was young, and in his own words, he struggled with the basic motor coordination needed to participate in many different forms of team sport. Although he didn't consider himself even remotely close to being an athlete, he somehow ended up becoming passionate about swimming. He worked endlessly on improving his skills in the pool and began to thrive, which helped him to better understand the power of perseverance and the importance of developing a greater belief in himself and what is possible when he set his mind to it. As you listen to this episode, you will hear the passion that Dan has for the work that he does and his lifelong quest to better understand the power of group dynamics in helping to shape a person's character and their pursuit of excellence, both personally and professionally. I first came across his research in Angela Duckworth's best-selling book, Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. In her book, she outlines Dan's amazing work with the U.S. Olympic Swim Squad and shares what he learned not only by observing swimmers of all abilities, but in particular, the elite swimmers. By studying how the best swimmers in the nation pursued mastery of their craft, he learned deeply about how they connected with their coaches and teammates and the importance of developing strong relationships when striving to be one's best. Dan has been a member of the Hamilton College faculty since 1981 and earned a master's and PhD from Yale University. In 1982, his doctoral thesis received the American Sociological Association's prize for the best recent dissertation on medical sociology. He is the winner of the American Sociological Association Theory Section Prize for his work on organizational excellence in his widely reprinted 1989 article, The Mundanity of Excellence. Dan is also the author of the book Champions, The Making of Olympic Swimmers, which was named the 1999 Book of the Year by the U.S. Olympic Swim Committee. This episode was just a mini dive into Dan's life and his work. He's done so much more and has made a huge impact in his field. 
You can find out more about him in the show notes of this episode if you are interested in knowing more about him. Dan continues to remain open and curious about the world and strives to read and learn every day. When I asked him about the legacy that he hopes to one day leave behind, with great affection, he said that he wants to always be remembered as a teacher, not a researcher or a writer or an academic, but to be remembered as a teacher who always wanted to make a difference in the lives of the students he taught. He is a wonderful person, and it was a genuine joy to interview him on my podcast. I hope that wherever you are in the world right now, you find some gems from this episode that you can apply in your own personal and professional life. And with that, let's jump right into my conversation with Professor Dan Chambliss. I'm from the southern U.S. I'm from Tennessee. I uh, grew up there a very conservative period of time, you know, in the 50s and 60s and all. I, went, I spent seven years at an all-boys military school, uh, prep school, really. Um, it turns out to be a really good school, in fact. The education was excellent. But I was there for some years. I went to college in Florida. I went to grad school at Yale in New Haven. Um, in high school and college, I was a, a pretty serious student. Um, I mean, I, I grew up reading widely, studying lots of things. I got real interested in psychology um, while I was in high school. And I also, uh, I was a terrible athlete as a child. Uh, I was, you know, always the last pick for the teams, that sort of thing, until I got to high school. And um had an experience there where I, I, I went out for swimming because you had to do a sport. And that was the one where I was least likely to get hurt. <laughs> that was kind of my criterion. And I'd never done it before. And um, what happened is over the period of really a period of six weeks, one summer, I decided to get serious about it and found a good coach. And I suddenly became pretty good at it, like good enough to get second in the state championships in my event. And, um, that was a really transformative experience, you know, where I discovered that if you paid attention and focused on something, you know, even somebody who appeared, uh, to be really lousy at something, namely sport, I actually did pretty well. And like, wait, how did that happen? And that was always kind of a mystery, but still I worked really hard, um, at swimming when I was in high school. I, I mean, I was the hardest working athlete I knew. And yet I never really got very far by my standards. I, I didn't do nearly as well as I felt I should. And it was always kind of a mystery to me why that happened. Um, so then later I went to graduate school in sociology because I was interested in group dynamics. I kind of was thinking a lot about coaching at that point and needed to understand how people operate, especially in groups. And um, got to grad school, got into philosophy a lot while I was there. Um, wound up studying organizations of all sorts, uh, from businesses to military units to um, uh, sports teams and hospital stuff. Did my dissertation on nursing, on hospital nursing and ethical problems that people face being nurses in big hospitals. And uh, uh, luckily enough, I got a job, which is a tough thing to do, 
um, in academia and got a job at a place called Hamilton College, which is a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And, um, and it's a great school. And I've been teaching there for the past 40 years. So that's my career in a nutshell. And along the way, I did various research. So I spent a lot of time teaching. Uh, I also spent a lot of time at various points, especially when I had sabbaticals and stuff, doing research on different kinds of big organizations. So again, I've studied hospitals, wrote a book about that. I studied Olympic class competitive swimmers, wrote a book about that, which you've, uh, which I know you've read uh, or looked at. Um, uh, let's see, what else? I've done higher education studies. Uh, I've done a book about research with a colleague, did a book about social science research methods. So lots of different things. Most of it comes back to what I would call the social psychology of organizations. Mm -hmm. That is how people perform in uh, in official groups, you know, in, in groups like a sports team would be the example I know you're interested in, especially. Yeah, so that's that's um, what I, I'm really interested in pursuing. And, yeah. and I just want to peel it back to when you were in um, the prep, your prep school. You said it was a military yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. And it's what kind of values or what kind of strengths did you develop that um, served you well when, as you say, you kind of fumbled about sports, you didn't feel you were very athletic, mm. and then suddenly yeah. you you found a person. Oh, no, that was a fact. I was not okay. very athletic. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't dribble a basketball until yeah. I was an adult. For what, what do you feel the strengths were that, that gave you, you know, the skills yeah. needed to excel at swimming? Um, well, one was just my ambition. Uh, and I wasn't, it's not that I was particularly ambitious. What happened literally is I was, uh, I was on this lousy little country club team, you know, I mean, a, a recreational team. Okay. is what it was. And, uh, and that's fine. And I had a great time doing it. And, uh, at the beginning of one season, this kid was chosen to be captain. And I thought this guy was kind of a, um, I don't know what to say. He, I mean, he's a perfectly nice fella, but he, he was just kind of, you know, messing around. I mean, he wasn't very serious about swimming. And I thought, well, if that guy could be captain, I could be captain, you know? And mm-hmm. like, what does this take? And I thought you would get to be captain by working hard and doing what the coach said and showing up every day and stuff. Turns out that had nothing to do with being elected captain. But, but along the way, because I showed up and uh, the woman who was coaching the team was good, and she saw that I was interested, you know, and she taught me some things. And all of a sudden I got fast. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. What happened? And this literally happened in about six weeks. And it was uh, the, the, the key moment then was at the end of that season when I when we went to the championships. And now I had never finished higher than third in even a dual meet situation. You know, like I I'd never won anything. And I went to the championships and all of a sudden I nearly, I nearly won. I mean, I came in four tenths of a second out of the gold medal and the look on the faces of the other guys in that pool, when I hit the end and I stopped and stood up and I looked side to side and they were all looking at me with their jaws hanging open. Like who the hell are you? <laughs> because for one thing I was small. I mean, I was five, seven in a world of six foot three guys. Uh, and, um, and they were butter, just butterfly? Was that butterfly? No, it was breaststroke. Breaststroke. Was breaststroke. Yeah, breaststroke. Uh, which is important, but yeah. physically I 
basically can't swim anything else. My, I got, I'm splay footed, right? My yeah. feet turn out yeah. and I can't, um, I can't plant or flex my feet. Right. I can't point my toes. Yeah. So it just, the physics just doesn't work. But for breaststroke, I was, you know, I was pretty good. That's amazing. Um, and, and it was the thrill of beating all these big guys who had spent, you know, I'd spent my whole childhood having them run all over me. And that motive, that's a motivator, you know, sure, it was yeah. kind of justice or something. And yeah. uh, that was probably the big, the big, uh, the big thing. So that's, and then that's, surrounded by people who had high standards. I mean, yeah. that's the other. so you say the, the school I went to, there were a lot of seriously good swimmers and re- some really smart guys, you know, on the academic side, I was, um, you know, there were a lot of people going places. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just get used to working at that level. And that's what fascinates me about showing up when the pressure's on and performing at your best. Yeah. And that's what, everybody tries to unlock is what are the conditions yeah. that oh, yeah. lead an athlete to be able, being able to perform on the elite stage. And that's what your life's work right. in particular yes. with the, the Olympic swimmers was all about is figuring out what it was. And I guess I want to uh, go Correct. back to like, as you were entering the academic uh, life and becoming a researcher, when did you know that you were onto something special? So it's a two part question really is when did you know that you were onto something special and how did you know that it was the path you were meant to be on? Uh, onto something special with regard to that set of ideas. You I mean, think just or? in your heart, knowing that this is what you were meant to do. This is the work hmm. you were meant to do. Well, that's a great, that's a, that's a great question. You mean my research? Yeah. The research when something clicked inside of you and, and just, you know, that intrinsic motivation and, and you were like, this is really important to me. I love this work. Well, um, I, I would say to, to be honest, I mean, it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm not, uh, I, I grew up as an intellectual, right? So my parents, you know, the house was filled with books, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that was clearly always something my parents and my whole extended family valued a lot. My grandparents had a library in their house that was honestly a library. Wow. You know, it was, it was, that was just kind of the, and, and I've got cousins who are all professors and judges and things like that, you know, so there was a lot of emphasis on thinking about things and talking about things and uh, figuring stuff out and so on. So that's how the academic part of me mm-hmm. uh, lived. The athletic thing was actually a very odd thing in my family. Uh, it was very unusual mm-hmm. to be athletic at all. Um, and it was the combination of those two. It was realizing that you could bring, let's say, thinking to sports. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is what you do, right? You know, as you think about the stuff and, and I was very, um, you know, if I had an alternative career, I would have been a coach. And I actually spent, uh, almost 10 years coaching swimming, coaching, a uh, a club team is what they're called. It, it used to be AAU and then U S swimming and so on, but, uh, Olympic, it's an Olympic, um, ladder, you know, kind of part of the sport. I loved coaching. I mean, I just love it because it requires thinking, you know, about how to do things better uh, and figuring it out and really helping other people be able to do that. Um, 
So I, I, I got off track of your question. No, I, I think that's, that's important to understand that context of coming from an academ academic uh, background and family and, yeah. and having a lot of readers. And, and I guess, you know, I, I really want to jump into that idea of what were some of the big research questions you grappled with early on in your career that further sparked your interest about what it was you wanted to figure out about human potential? Huh. Uh well, initially, it wasn't about human potential, I suppose. It was, uh, I was actually um, interested in, well, in face-to-face -face behavior, you know, and how people behave around other people. Mm -hmm. And I, again, it was the coaching thing. My, my initial drive during college was I wanted to help people swim faster. And I needed to know about group dynamics. Because while swimming looks like an individual sport, to outsiders, you know, you see people, somebody gets up on the blocks by themselves and they swim. They're just them. It's not a team endeavor. In fact, day to day, it's very much a team sport. That is, you're surrounded by other people. You're in very close physical contact. You know, I don't know if, you know, swimmers, when you train, you swim with circles, like you'll have a bunch of people in a lane. And that's a highly organized proposition. And so I realized early on that the group dynamics were critical if you're a coach, right? You've got to be able to organize a group of people and focus them on the same things and get them working together and that kind of thing. That's how I got into studying sociology. Um, was, it about the develop, was it about the development of relationships as, as yes. a big piece yes. of that? So yes. when, I, when I think of that, I think of uh, self-determination theory and Dr. Richard Ryan and Edward mm -hmm. Deasy's work and the three right. human fundamental needs of autonomy, relatedness, and competence. So yeah. you're speaking yeah. in particular about relatedness there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the relatedness. And when you talk about autonomy, my cut on that would be that you've got this group of people, let's say a team that you're training. Uh, they're there for real different reasons. I mean, there are a lot of different motivators out there. And people, some people do it to show off. Some people do it because they like the physicality. Some people are trying to please their parents. Some people are trying to please the coach. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there are lots of different reasons to want to be, let's say, swimming, for instance. And as the coach, you've got to figure out what those are for all those people mm -hmm. and then and then fit them together. Beautiful. Yeah. So that every so that it's a win win Mm -hmm. situation, right? So when I'm teaching, it's the same, same basic principle. Students are there for all kinds of different reasons. And that's fine, you know, and I've got my goals too. And it's trying to figure out how I can play to what they want in a way that I get what I think they need, really. Do you feel that that um, through an education lens, you know, a lot of the work that I do is around helping teachers uh, differentiate yeah. instruction in order to allow every learner an entry point into their that's own it. journey. So that's, that's what really fascinates me, whether it be yeah. in the classroom, great whether it be in a PE setting or visual arts or an after-school sports team or elite right. sport. So right. can, you, can you talk about, even at, on the elite stage, the role of differentiation yes. within that and knowing your athletes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, let's see how to say that. Well, that's what if you if you read something about I don't know Phil Jackson to take an easy example, right? Chicago Bulls in the '90s and all. Uh, you know, you've got 
people who are not just elite athletes, but they're real aware that they're elite athletes and they get paid way more than you do. And they have fans, you know, who think that person is the, is the, you know, the be all of this program and that and NBA coaching. I just can't imagine how difficult that must be because you've got a collection of stars and getting those people to work together it has got to be very, very difficult. And that's the art of it. Or take a different example. There was the, uh, uh, the film director, Mike Nichols, who died just a couple of years ago. I read a biography of him. And he directed all kind of great movies in the 50s, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, uh, and he also did a lot of Broadway plays. And what he was good at is working with very difficult people, frankly, uh, who were a pain in the neck and wouldn't show up and came in drunk all the time and so on, but they were gifted, you know, actors. And how do you put that together uh, is, is the problem. Um, yeah. And so let's see, your question though, was about how do you actually do that? <laughs> I, I think it's about that idea of the, the relationship between the teacher and the student or the coach and the yes. athlete. Yes. And although there are high expectations because my life work yeah. is really about helping every student find an entry point in order to thrive, mm -hmm. you know, and Ken right. Robinson right. summed right. it up in his speech about death. Did you see Ken Robinson's Ted talk about death Valley? Oh no. Okay. So do you know, sir, Ken Robinson? No. Okay. So I'm he, sorry. he just passed away a few years ago, but a mm -hmm. brilliant speaker. And he brings uh -huh. these ideas about um, schools kill creativity. And, yeah. And yeah. Well, yeah, they have to. Right. And, in a sense that yeah, you don't have to. But, but this this idea that um, when you get the conditions right. So he talks about Death Valley is the hottest, driest place in North America. And, and in I think yeah. it was 2004 in the winter, it rained for the first time in a decade, like seven inches yeah. of rain. And then in the spring of 2005, the floor of Death Valley was carpeted in flowers. And what he used that um, story for as a metaphor, that Death Valley was just dormant and that when mm. you get the conditions right, mm -hmm. flowers will blossom. And he uses yes. that metaphor for anybody oh, yeah. when you get the conditions oh, yeah. right. So that's that's kind of what I'm talking about is how does a, and it's not about having the answer here, but it's just exploring the question is how does a great coach help every all of his athletes thrive, his or her yeah. athletes thrive? Sure. All right. Well, I would say number one is figuring out what, what motivates each person, mm -hmm. each athlete, right? And then trying to make sure that person gets some of that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And again, it might be the coach's approval. It might be somebody enjoys uh, learning different techniques, you know, so you make sure you teach them different techniques. Uh, other people are there for the social life, so you make mm -hmm. sure that you know, there's time like when I was coaching uh, the team, you know, I always had built in slots. You know, it might be typically it'd be something like two minutes, actually, between sets. And I, you know, I would um, as a regular thing, students, uh, students, the, the swimmers would know we're going to do, you know, this set. But then there will be like a two minute break. And that's when they can chat with each other and I don't bother them, right? I don't talk to them or interfere or anything like that. So they have their visiting time. And that's important for a lot of people. Um, so it's appreciating that stuff and, and taking it as legitimate, mm -hmm. right? Again, people are there for all kinds of reasons and they're not going to be your reasons. Mm -hmm. 
um, and respecting. So that basically comes down to respecting the people you're working with. Yeah. And the athletes saying it's totally fine to not care about X, Y, and Z. Again, when I'm teaching, uh, I recognize, look, we're going to read a bunch of books. You may not like some of them. That's cool. You know, that's fine. Tell me the ones you like. <laughs> right. And let me see if I can feed you some more stuff like that. And just the sheer fact that you do that, I think wins a lot of, um, gets a lot, you get a lot of points and they'll, they then respect you, the coach or teacher, and will they'll, they'll be willing to go with you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love they'll that. trust you. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been working on with a team of researchers is, um, taking a look at all the models of instruction and in physical education, um, over the past 50 years. And really, uh, this team of researchers that I connected with, what they did was they created something called the meaningful physical education framework. And what mm -hmm. they found was that the five most common features of a meaningful experience in physical education, learning about physical activity, sport, mm -hmm. and exercise, are there are five features. One is joy and delight, personal, yeah. personal relevance, social interaction, challenge, and motor competence. Yeah. And what yeah. you just described is everybody's there for a different reason. Is some it's social interaction, some it's repetition, right. skill, and drill. Some is it's tackling the next challenge and goal setting and really figuring mm -hmm. out what works and then building on that momentum, right? Yeah. And I think a, a real problem in absolutely in PE and in academics is, um, you know, throwing people in the deep water uh, before they're ready or, or in PE classes. I mean, I don't know. My, my daughter was in ninth grade and was a terrible athlete and they put her in PE classes with varsity football players, you know, like this is, what are you doing? Mm. You know, somebody didn't think that one through at all. And she comes out feeling discouraged and actually angry about it. And then she hates the PE. You know, it's yeah. it's obvious. Right. Yeah. Um, but but you've got to respect where the person is. And the same thing is obviously true in school. You know, as we we dump people in settings where they're going to get clobbered and then go, well, you should be better. Well, that's that's not, <laughs> that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, again, I think it really comes down to respecting the people you're respecting your athletes or students or the, the people you're in charge of and treating each one as kind of a legitimate person, mm -hmm. you know, and they've got their abilities and things they can do. And, uh, you know, they're good at this thing and not at that thing. And there's nothing the way I put it um, in an article last year was there's nothing morally wrong with not wanting to swim. For instance, I mean, I'd have kids on that on the team I coached whose parents made them do it. Right. And and the kid was kind of, you know, would be kind of sluggish about it, not really into it and stuff. And I would talk with him, find out that was the real story. And then I go, oh, fine. OK, why don't you, you know, be in this lane with these kids and do this? Don't worry about it. I don't. It's fine with me. You know, and once they realized it was fine with me, then they sort of liked being there more. Yeah, yeah. Because I wasn't giving them a hard time. And the next thing you know, they learn a couple of things and then they get better and then they get kind of excited because they're, you know, the competence thing. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It works, and, works really well. Yeah. So I, I'm, I just love your article, The mundan, uh, Mundanity of uh, Excellence. And, um, so, and that's what I want to jump into now. So you wrote that, I sure. think, in 1984, was it? Yeah. 
89. It was oh, 89. 89 after, by the time after, it was done, yeah. Okay, right. After the Olympics, yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about, um, firstly, just to kind of set the scene, can you talk about the vision that you had for this research paper and the, what the journey was like actually putting pen to paper? Okay. I wanted to know how people got to be good at this sport because I had never reached anything like what I wanted to reach when I was, I, I was an athlete. I worked real hard. I didn't get anywhere. I mean, by my standard, right. I thought I should have been at the nationals or something and I wasn't. And I was curious about it. And the Olympics were in Los Angeles in 1984. And, uh, I was a sociologist at that point. And so I could say to people, gee, I'm writing a book, you know, and then they talk to you, uh, which is kind of magic because they wouldn't have talked to me otherwise. <laughs> But I, I went out there and uh, went out to California, and there was this team called Mission Viejo Natadors, who were the dominant team in the sport at that point, and great coaches and everything. I lived with a group of coaches. I shared a house with a group of Olympic coaches and um, spent a couple of years studying these folks. And uh, so now wait, but the point of your question was, what, this is what we need to know. So keep rolling with that because that's yeah, the back okay. backstory into the paper. So, yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, what happened was, um, I had all these ideas about what Olympians were like, and I had, um, you know, I had watched the Olympics from 1960, 64, 68, 72, you know, I'd spent all this time watching these people and kind of idolizing them and reading all about them. And I had a notion of what they were like. And I got out there and it turned out I was wrong. You know, that once I started actually spending time with these folks, they were not at all what I had envisioned. And one of the big things I realized was that for them, in their world, they were ordinary people. <laughs> you know, they were like human beings. And, you know, they get up in the morning, they go to the swimming pool and they swim a lot, right? And they're real fast. But otherwise, they were just kind of like teenagers, which most of them were. They were kids, and they they acted like kids, and they joked around like kids, and they swam like Olympic gold medalists, yeah. right? And so uh, it was the the ordinariness of it, I guess, mm -hmm. is what really struck me. The mundanity, if you want to use that word, um, of it that that was a big thing and and then seeing too at the same time i myself was during those years coaching this little team in upstate new york that was terrible when we started i mean we were nowhere i'd never seen a swim team that bad actually and when i started coaching it and uh and i wanted it to be better and so I had to learn how to become a good coach because I was not when I started. I mean, I knew a lot about the sport, but I didn't know how to get people to do things. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how to motivate them at all. And so it was a combination of watching and t these people training for the Olympics and talking a lot with their coaches and different coaches. I mean, they're all kind of different coaches, you know, they're very different styles. And seeing what they were doing that got them to be good and then trying to apply it, you might say, in my own life at the other end of the country yeah. back in New York. And it was going through that process of trying to become a much better coach. And it involves some personality change, really. Mm -hmm. It was very hard. Um, 
where you can, I, can I ask you a know, question? And I got people to the national level. Yeah, know? can I ask you a question about were you when you were with the elite swimmers in California, and yeah. you were observing, you were living with them, and from what I read, you were traveling with them, having meals hmm. with them. You were privy to oh, yeah. those, I was those session them. practices. Was it oh, yeah. more of an observational role, or did did you script questions yes. you wanted to ask? How did how did the yeah. conversations take place with coaches yeah. and and athletes? Yeah. Um, was it yeah. spur of the moment, spontaneous questions? Was it planned for questions? Was it observation? Okay, yeah, that's- yeah, it was uh, it was it was real life. Uh, I was there. What happened actually is the way it. Um, I mean, I went out there thinking I wanted to study them initially. And what happened in a series of conversations, I just sat and watched off, off to the side, and I was very low-key about it. And at some point, um, I began talking with a couple of the assistant coaches, and I said, I'm a social psychologist, and I study organizations, because I just finished a dissertation about hospitals and nurses. And they said, oh, you should study us, <laughs> which is what I was dreaming they would say, right? I mean, they, and they did. They thought, oh, this is cool. This guy's you know, we don't know any sociologists. I mean, who does this sort of thing? Yeah. And and so that allowed me entree. And the, the head coach, who was really good to me, um, same thing. Is what, I think once they realized that I wasn't going to interfere, they didn't mind me hanging around. You know, I'd show up at 4.30 for a morning practice. And they're like, I, one of them actually, one of the coaches at one point said, I don't know who this guy is or what he wants, but he wants it really bad, you know? And I was curious. I just wanted to find out what do you, what do you do that works? And, uh, Mark Schubert, the head coach said to me at one point said, well, have you uh, said to me after about a week, he said, have you got us figured out yet? And I said, no, no, this is, this will take a year. He's like, Oh my God. So I think they respected what I was doing the way I respected them. But uh, what to answer your question uh, no, there, I mean, I did interviews with dozens and dozens of people, but it wasn't like real formal set piece questions. I just want to learn about them. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, along the way, there were things that I learned. And then I put it together and wrote this article. And I said, I felt like I'd had some big insights mm-hmm. about life. No, really, you know, performance and excellence and, and life. And uh, so I just wrote it all down in an article and, you know, the rest is history. I mean, yeah, and it hit, it struck a nerve with a lot of people and a lot of people have read it and say nice things about it. Yeah. And, and when you were, were you looking at the way they use language? Were you looking at mindset? Were you, were you figuring out what to look at or what were you learning along the way in the, yeah. the some of the big, cause I know that from what I read, when I read the article, um, there's a distinct difference between quantitative and qualitative differentiation. And, and I yes. really, yes. that was, that's what really um, sure. switched on the light bulb for me because mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of people think it's quantitative. It's the number of reps. It's the number of no, hours. No, 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 no. Right. No, 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 no. So, no. It, I mean, that's part of it. Yeah you got to put in the number of, you know, 10,000 hours and all that, but that's not the important. I mean, I think Malcolm Gladwell missed the point in a sense on that when he started talking about 10,000 hour rule and Anders Ericsson's work, right? It's not the 10,000 hours. That's the crucial part. The crucial part is 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Yes. That is of really paying attention and working on the details and thinking about, you know, doing, 
I don't know, doing a hundred foul shots after practice every day is not going to get you anywhere if you're sloppy. Yeah. It only helps if you do each one correctly. Yeah. So you, so you lock in the exact proper technique. That's the key. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so I don't want to say quantity doesn't matter. That's not, that's not correct. But, but the quality is the really crucial part. You know, practicing correct technique. And you broke that down into technique, discipline, and attitude, right? Yeah. Can you give us a little insight into those, those three areas? Uh, Yeah, sure. And I don't know if those are the only three. I mean, those are just three things that were pretty clear to me. So technique, again, you know, you've got to do it the right way. Uh, So to take an easy example um, from my own life, I, I, when I swam breaststroke in high school, um, I had a coach who taught me how to do a turn and uh, it was wrong. And I didn't realize this until many years later, Mm -hmm. it was wrong. And I conscientiously practiced that over and over and over again. Okay. I drilled in a bad turn. Well, that's not, that's not a good idea. Right. So you do have to know, and there are techniques, right. And there are coaches and books and people who can tell you what those are and you need to do them. So technique, uh, discipline just means, you know, doing it every time correctly, you know, not Mm -hmm. getting sloppy about it. Um, and that, well, there's a side note on that. I'll get, I'll come back to Attitude is just the whole mindset, again, of, for instance, enjoying the work rather than not. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things I saw is that um, a lot of these athletes, and then there are exceptions. I mean, there's Andre Agassi, you know, who hated playing tennis, but was great at it. Uh, but um, most of these folks, they like doing it. You know, I'm watching Major League Baseball players all the time, and, you know, it's cold and raining and wretched weather, and they're out there playing baseball. Like, this, guy's, this, this guy must really like baseball, yeah, yeah. you know? And I don't mean maybe in that moment, but growing up at least, mm-hmm. you know, like there was something about baseball that he just, it just turns them on, you know, like he just loves doing it. And, and that attitude, so, so that contrasts with the attitude that I think most of us have about most things we do, which is, oh, this is kind of an aggravation. I got to do it, you know, or I like it up to a point, but who wants to spend all day on it? Things like that, right? So it's the inversion of attitude where you think of things as fun or challenging or enjoyable rather than something I got to go through, you know, in order to win this medal, Okay. So what I noticed about the swimmers was lots of, they like coming to practice. You know, it was fun. It's their idea of fun and it may not be yours or mine, but they really like it. I mean, I, or talking to football players and I said, what do you like about football? I "I like contact. I like hitting people, you know, getting in pads and going, bam, like that. That's cool. Like, well, it's not my idea of fun. Okay. But if you, you know, it's, that's the attitude thing. Yeah. The discipline point, uh, what I would add to the idea of discipline is most people, and, and this is, this is my, um, uh, challenge, I guess, to Angela Duckworth, right. On grit. And we've talked about this is I think, I think it emphasizes too much the idea of Mm self-discipline, which is a great 
thing, you know? I mean, I'm all for self-discipline. The problem is most people don't have it. Most of us don't have it. I mean, I speak for myself, that I think uh, group conformity is stronger. Like what you want is to be in a group of people where everybody's doing it this way. And so you don't have to discipline yourself. You know, it's like you want to have an exercise buddy, for instance, and say, hey, every day we're going to the gym. And then the days when you don't feel like it, the other, oh, come on there, Andy, you know? Yeah. And then the days when they're feeling, oh, come on. And so instead of self-discipline, you have something more like a group um, culture or, or conformity is, is a strong way to put it. Like you're doing it because everybody else is doing it. Um, i give you one final example. My favorite example of this is if you want to learn a foreign language, yeah, you can get books, right? And you can try to do, you know, Rosetta Stone or any of these online programs or whatever about um, learning languages, but that's hard. Uh, or you can go live in the country. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Right. Yeah. You're going to learn the language. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't take that much self-discipline in a sense. I yeah. mean, you're there. If you if you grew up in Saudi Arabia, you're going to speak Arabic, right? Yeah. It's just, and you don't have to work at it in a sense. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that when I had finished playing football at the university, so I'm from Canada and I had finished my stint playing university and I wasn't uh, university football. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, she had an opportunity to go to Hiroshima, Japan to do um, like a work kind of holiday thing. Yeah. And I followed her there, but I had to do three more work, uh, months of work at my job before I went. So I went to the library, got the old VHS cassette tapes about learning Japanese. And then when I, when I got to That's Japan, a hard language. Yeah, when I got to Japan, I took beginner Japanese and, and because I had already yeah. studied a bit, I started to take off with it a bit and learn yeah. it quite quickly. But my best learning was that I played on the Japanese American football team and I was the only foreigner and I was thrown right into the mix and going yeah. away for tournaments on the weekend, only Japanese. It was grueling, uh, but I wow. walked away from a weekend uh, trip, you know, learning so much more Japanese, but not textbook yeah. Japanese, actual yeah. conversational actual Japanese. Japanese, <laughs> right. Which is, now, that's a great example. Yeah. And in that case, you're in, involved in something you like doing, right? Mm -hmm. And you care when somebody says something to, you know, you want to make sure you got that right and that sort of thing. No, that's a great example. That's the way to do it. Yeah. I think schools, um, schools are a very imperfect method of education. <laughs> Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. Yeah. Because yeah. of things like that. Yeah. You mentioned in the article I read, you know, you used Greg Luganis as an example of purposeful yeah. and intentional practice. And you said, yeah, chose, no kidding. Yeah. He chose to practice three hours a day. So tell the listeners a little bit about Greg Luganis's mindset when it came to training and, and doing it right and having the discipline to do each dive correctly. Well, sure. Greg, um, Greg was a great example of this. This is back in the 1980s. He was the best diver in the world, dominant, really dominant. And his coach, Ron O'Brien, um, is actually married to a sociologist, sociology professor. So I wound up meeting Ron through his wife. Mm -hmm. um, and he, uh, I was studying swimmers, but they were in the same facility, practicing in the same facility. And he invited me to come and watch, you know, their training. And there were a number of divers. I mean, Greg Levinus wasn't the only one. But uh, 
you know, three hours a day doesn't seem like that much. But if you're concentrating on every, everything you do, it's quite intense. It's quite emotionally intense. And uh, one of the examples I liked, one of the things that happened was I remember one day, uh, so Greg's going off uh, the 10 meter platform, which is pretty high up in the air. I don't know if you ever yeah, I've seen stood at the jumped. top no, of one of these no. things. You don't want to jump off that thing. Anyway, yeah. it's dangerous among other things, right? Because if you hit a dive wrong, you come down wrong, you really get hurt. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Luganus is going off this thing and, and he did something. He did one and... And from the, we were sitting on the deck, Ron O'Brien and I were sitting on the deck and Ron's looking up. So it's a concrete platform and you can't see through concrete, right? Mm -hmm. So he couldn't literally see Greg's feet until he took off. But he said at one point, he said, he said, oh, you're, I think your second step was a little slow. And I'm like, how do you know that? You, you can't see what he's doing. But the level of uh, attention and um, familiarity with exactly what was happening made it so as if O'Brien could see through concrete was the way I thought of it. He knew what had happened that would lead to the result he saw. He said, your second step was a little slow or whatever it was. And, uh, and that just drew my attention to, again, the level of detail involved. Uh, in in doing these things so precisely the way people do. And it's true in everything. I mean, a different, very different sort of example here. Look at an old, I don't know if you're familiar with the Peanuts cartoons, yeah, with yeah. Charles yeah. Schultz, yeah. Peanuts cartoons. They look very simple, right? The drawings, I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, set aside the content, which is incredible. But the drawings look like, oh, that's a circle with a two or three little squiggles. But the subtlety of emotional expression he gets, Schultz would get, from the slightest little twist of a, what looks like a scratch on a piece of paper, you know, from a drawing, is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And I look there, I've tried to learn how to draw, and I, I don't know how he did it, you know. But he could convey so much about a child's facial expression with just four or five lines, it's how do you do that? Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer. But again, the the precision of the detail is the is the kicker there. And there's an enormous difference between a Schultz cartoon and an imitation of one. Yeah, well, for sure, for sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> when when you think of like Luganus, like purposely keeping his practice to three hours a day. And, and as you say, it's emotionally and physically grueling because he's so intentionally focused. What yeah. he's also doing is freeing up time for um, restoration and, and absolutely you know, recouping sure. and recovery. Sure. So keeping yourself healthy and yeah. yeah. And I think the old school mentality was drill, 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 uh, push harder, push harder, but there's no yeah. time for recovery. Right. Mm -hmm. How do you right. feel like if you were to compare if I, you know, I want to ask you what you used to think your work was about, in particular when it comes to athletics, okay? What you used to think it was about compared to what you know now based on being a lifelong learner. What are some big insights uh, or 
areas that have changed for you? Well, the, the big one, I mean, if you, if you think of this as a 40 year career, my career, right. Um, the big change was I, from, from the article, even from mundanity, which was 1989 to now is I, I much more strongly emphasize the group nature of the thing, the, okay. the, the social elements. That is, I think if you want to be a great swimmer, you got to join a great team. Uh, if you want to be a great right now, writers, for instance, I'm a, I'm a writer, you know, I'm not great, but I've done stuff. Uh, and if you study intellectuals and people have done this work, we think of them as individuals and it's lonely work. And there you are by yourself and blah, blah, blah. All of that's true. But most great writers, it turns out, have spent a huge, a lot of time, especially growing up with other great writers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're in networks of people where people care about it. And they think that tinkering, like I'm doing this morning, I was doing 6.30 this morning, I'm writing an essay for a magazine, and I'm, I'm messing with the last word. I mean, one word in a 1,500-word essay, and I've spent a couple hours, you know, like, ah, oh, there's that. But if I do that, you know, then the rhythm isn't right, and this word, it needs to be one syllable, not two. I mean, stuff like that. Again, out of 1,500 words. Uh, You've got to be around people who think that's a worthy endeavor, who think you're not just a moron or that's ridiculous or why would anybody spend their life doing that? And so I think in almost any endeavor, the people who are great at it, they're there for a number of reasons, right? But obviously, but one of them is they at least spend their formative years in close contact with other people who value that work. Mozart is the classic example. People always say, oh, Mozart, he was talented. He was so gifted. Great. Okay, fine. That's not why he was a great musician. Okay, there are probably lots of people out there who have talent in that sense. But Mozart grew up with a father who was a world-class musician, and his sister was a world-class musician. And right from age zero, he was embedded in a world where that's what you do. Mm. We do music. You know, the same way that if you grow up in Japan, we talk Japanese. Like, mm. it's an important thing. We, you got to get it right. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and my, my position now much more focuses on that than, than I probably would have 30 years ago. Yeah. So whether you're an introvert or an Par- extrovert. Partly because it makes it easier to do. Yeah. I like it. If, if like you're easy. an introvert or an extrovert, it's still that group, group dynamic because a lot of people yeah. have a um, yeah. believe that introverts just need their space and time away and solitude. But At Sure. But they, they still do. they still need to connect to a group that has a common goal and a common yes. common vision, right? Yes, yes, because all the stuff, all the performances we're talking about, you know, sports or music or writing or whatever, they're all social activities. You're producing it for someone else. You have to think somebody's going to appreciate it. There are very few athletes who work like a maniac with the idea that no one else will ever know they're doing it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really happen. You know, and musicians are writing for an audience, even if it's a kind of abstract one or a small one. But you're always doing this stuff 
in a sense, for other people. And so those relationships with other people uh, set the, uh, the boundaries for what you can do. Mm-hmm. I think of my, my son's journey because my son picked up the game of golf um, as a golfer my whole life and a, you know, teaching yeah. PE for a number of years before moving into my role now as an instructional coach. Um, we moved to Saudi Arabia five years ago, ago and the golf course is literally 500 meters away. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a sport dad that pushed sport on my sons. Yeah. So I tried to get them to the golf course early on, no interest. I just let it go. And then the European golf tour, um, the Saudi government signed a deal with the European golf tour to host the first ever professional golf tournament in Saudi Arabia at a course about 20 minutes away. So I bring my my son out there at the time. He was um, about 14 and a half or 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he knew, you know, Dustin Johnson and he knew of these world-class golfers, but they were there at this tournament and there were no spectators. So my son is walking around with these players. They're giving him golf balls. They're Phil Mickelson talking to him. And and then suddenly my son, two and a half years ago, said, I want to play golf. I want to be a pro golfer. (laughs) And he went from a, a 30 handicap. He's now down to about a seven handicap. He, he shot even even par last night. Um, but why I tell you that story is that he has nobody at school that plays golf. He has nobody that thinks the way he does. He's into sports psychology. He's into all of these things. And I'm, I'm trying to tell him you keep pursuing your goals and continue to surround yourself with people who, who will push you and and have the same goal. So he plays mostly with people much older than him. And he's found a a group to play with. Um, So what is your advice to some people that have difficulty finding that group dynamic? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. You know, when I was growing up, I, uh, I was into theater like I was in community theater plays and stuff. But um, at that time in Tennessee, you know, there wasn't a lot of it. And I had, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of good directors, which is a big thing, but there was no opportunity for musical theater, like song and dance and Broadway stuff. I mean, especially for a guy going to a military school, you know, 1965, are you kidding me? Uh, and that's too bad because I really would have loved it, but I just wasn't in that setting. You know, I wasn't in a world where that was possible. Um, so wait, but now I lost my train of thought again. Just about the group dynamics. So what, what can you, oh, yeah. what advice do you have? To what can you who, do? Yeah. yeah who, who might struggle to find that group? Dynamic? Well, actually it's one of the nice things about the internet, uh, which has a lot of bad things too, but, but at least you can find some community of people who think, you know, this is an important thing to do, or you can talk with them or back and forth say, well, I tried this today. What do you think? You know, and get some connection, but that really is the key is finding, you know, other people who want to do it as well. Uh, Finding other people who value it and think this is a good thing. Um, And that's, that's a big thing in my teaching too. When I find, um, a student who's real interested in such and such a topic, you know, I'll say, well, gee, you might talk to professor so-and-so because I know he's done some of that in the past and might have some ideas or here's another student. I've actually done this uh, a number of times is get a, I'll have a dinner 
you know, where I get a group of students together who I know are interested in such and such. a talk, And then they start talking. Oh, my gosh, I didn't know other people cared about this. It's yeah. great. You know, now we're best friends, you know, that sort of thing. So it's um, what sociologists call mobilization. Hmm. It's it's connecting people who have shared interests and getting them ideally getting them physically in the same place, you know, mm-hmm. so they can meet each other and see, oh, they got excited about this. And I mentioned this thing and they lit up. And suddenly you're you're reinforced in going down that path. Yeah. And, you know, just in segueing, I know that we're on a, a bit of a time constraint here, but in segueing, uh, segueing into the last part of the conversation and considering you've been at this for 40 years plus, how do you stay motivated every day? And, and what keeps you inspired to keep that fire lit and to keep your those um, <laughs> that curiosity still burning. <laughs> doing podcasts with you, yeah. I'm you know that's the answer is doing stuff like this mm-hmm. and looking for those opportunities. I have a a great um, there's a great person at our college who who um, does kind of publication placements. So um, last year I wrote, I just spent a few hours really writing a little piece on um, this thing about don't, um, there's nothing morally wrong with not wanting to swim. Mm -hmm. That idea that that it's okay to have other interests and so on. I just wrote 700 words. I sent it to her. Next thing you know, it was in the Wall Street Journal, you know, and I got thousands of responses. I mean, letters and emails and everything from people. And that's exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's enormously fun. So having people who can help you make those connections is certainly big. Uh, I've, I can't remember a time when I've been bored, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you get tired of one thing, you do something else. <laughs> do you have a consistent daily routine? No, I, I don't recommend my approach at all. <laughs> now, I wish, I wish I did. I wish I had a real steady work pattern but no my I've, I've done some books and when I do books I usually clear everything else out like I take a leave of absence mm-hmm. from my job uh, and I would like one of my books a book about hospitals I went to Tennessee and rented an, which is where I'm from right so I had my brother and other friends around and stuff and I rented an apartment and I spread out all my stuff on the living room floor and I spent a year writing a book uh, and then I have a routine. Okay. So I get up at 6am and work before breakfast, usually work for an hour and a half before breakfast and then spend the rest of the morning writing. And then, um, and then after that, I just do whatever, you know, like I, I don't work past noon most days. Right. Because again, just intellectual work, you get past four hours a day and things start. Yeah. Yeah. Start going downhill, and you need, as you said with Luganus, you need the recuperation time, and mm-hmm. you know having some fun and eating and things like that. Yeah. So I do have a regular routine when I'm on a, a project, but mm-hmm. uh, not on a day to day basis. And in between those projects, you have think time. So how do you how do you think yeah. think best about what's next? Uh, I read a lot. Mm-hmm. I read quite widely. If I don't like what I'm reading, I stop. <laughs> like I, most books I read, I don't read all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not sure I recommend this approach, but it this is what for works you. for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I follow my nose. Right. You know? And, and two more quick questions is if you could gift a book to some, I know you've, you've done a lot of uh, reading, of course, but, yeah. and it would probably depend on the person, but 
What's a, what's a book that's really sparked you lately that you would recommend? Well, lately is the Mark Harris biography of Mike Nichols, the film director. And I'm not a film buff at all. I don't Mm -hmm. care about movies or plays particularly. Uh, I I really don't care about plays, which is funny given that I used to be in a lot of them. Uh, But the theater, but I'm sort of fascinated. Like I don't go very often, but I'm fascinated by the process. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by how this guy, Mike Nichols, became a great director and how he learned to work with all kind of different people and how he learned how to get great performances out of, again, very difficult people. Mm-hmm. I mean, actors, you know, yeah. artists of all kinds, they don't yeah. work well in groups. I mean, they sort of famously don't work, you know, they're creative, we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they have amazing things to offer. So how do you cultivate that? That's what the, that book is about. It's called, it's just called Mike Nichols, a biography. That's probably the best thing I've read recently. Okay, great. Um, and the last question is, um, you know, in thinking about your career when it's all said and done, um, what's the legacy that you hope to leave behind? Well, in truth, uh, we've talked all about my research and stuff, but in truth, I'm a teacher. Hmm. Uh, And I went into academia to be a teacher Um, and all the rest was done, you know, it was interesting and fun. I think it's important, but, um, but really I was, I wanted to work with students and that came to me one day, it was in ninth grade in a medieval history class of all things, ancient history is what they call it at the school. And I was sitting there in class one day. I was like 14 years old. And the teacher was going on about something. And I, I was looking at him. And I almost said, I wanted to say out loud, why don't you sit down and let me do this? Because I honestly thought I could have done a better job at that than he was doing. And I don't mean 10 years later. I mean, right then, I could have stood up and done a better job of teaching that class. And he wasn't bad. I mean, and he was a perfectly nice man and stuff. But he just didn't know how to make it interesting. Um, and I felt like I did for whatever reason. And that's, that's nice. Uh, plus, I had theater training. Plus, uh, I cared. I, you know, I was interested in ideas and talking about them and stuff. And I don't, I, it's, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room. That's not the case. I think that's a real problem for a lot of professors. They do think they're smart. And I think I'm like, you know, I'm a bright guy, but I'm not nothing special. But I have students who are really sharp, <laughs> you know, and I love drawing that out. Awesome. In the same way that I'm not such a great swimmer. And when the last few years I was coaching, I said, I never coach anybody as bad as I was, you know. Yeah. But what I can do is help other people learn how to do things or develop what they have. And in truth, that's, that's the way I think of my career is I've, I've taught several thousand students, college students, and uh, their lives is what I'm most proud of. Oh, that's great. What a, what a great way to, to close the show and such an important message. Uh, a lot of teachers are so committed to what they do, and, but they reach burnout and then they yeah. Sometimes quit the profession. Um, but, oh yeah. yeah, but to maintain that Big problem, yeah, to maintain that interest and that passion and that commitment yeah. until the very end is going to serve so many young people. Well, so well it, yeah, the fact that teachers burn out is a very sad commentary on the systems they work mm-hmm. in. 
Yeah, that's what that is. Yeah, somewhere sure. somebody's doing something wrong. Yeah. So, uh, Dan, where can people find you and your work? Um, uh, Hamilton College, Clinton, New York. You just go to the Hamilton website, and there will be links to me and stuff I've done. But that's probably the easiest way. It's not hard to find it all. Dan Chambliss, you know, C-H-A-M-B-L-I-S-S. Okay, great. Are you, on, are you active on social media at all? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, pretty actively on Twitter. Uh, that's the big one. Okay. Okay, great. So I'll put that in the show notes. Um, so thank you very much for your time today. It was great to chat with you and, and take a dive into your work. And I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Andy. It's my pleasure. Okay, so I'm just going to close off the show. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dan Chambliss. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vassily.